It's a movie my boys and I love to watch. We usually watch it around June 6th, uh, which is the day we commemorate D-Day, because on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces invaded Europe to take uh, that continent uh, back from uh, Hitler's armies. And it was such a monumental day in history, and we love watching uh, movies and information about that day. And one of the movies we love to watch is called The Longest Day. It's a John Wayne movie and other well-known actors in that. And it's just a, a great movie to watch to learn about that time. But uh, you understand, don't you, that June 6, 1944 wasn't really the longest day. The longest day is found in Joshua chapter 10. And like June 6, 1944, it was a day of battle. But it was truly the longest day. And I want you to see this in Joshua chapter 10. So turn there with me as we continue our study through this wonderful Old Testament book, Joshua chapter 10. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So... Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel, and the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war Against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. And the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. The longest day. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pause in this moment to give you the glory that you alone deserve. You are the reason that we're here. You are the center of attention. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in such a way that we would see your majesty, that we would see your glory, that we would see your grandeur, that we would see your splendor. Lord, that we would leave today knowing we have met with the living God. And so, Lord, would you just move by your grace for your glory. We believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So, Holy Spirit of God, would you move in our midst, open the eyes of our hearts, and we would see these truths and be inclined to respond to these truths. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that. May we exalt today and lift up today the strong name of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, thank you. You can be seated. In Joshua chapter 9, we saw how Joshua made a foolish decision. The Gibeonites lived in the land and God wanted the Israelites to conquer them, to overthrow them. And the Gibeonites were worried by this this unstoppable army, the Israelites, and so they used deception to trick the Israelites into entering a covenant with them. They made Joshua think that they had traveled from a great distance, they didn't really live in the promised land, and they said, we want to make a covenant with you. So Joshua made a covenant with them, saying, we will not overthrow you, we will not destroy you, we will watch over you and not harm you. And it was a wrong decision because God wanted them to conquer the entire promised land. But even in that wrong decision, God works and God moves and God redeems. But they did have a covenant with Gibeon. Well, at the beginning of chapter 10, we see that the other kings in the land said, What's up with Gibeon? Those guys should have been on our side. But instead, they've entered into a covenant with Israel. So we'll go get Gibeon. We'll show Gibeon uh, that that he should have stayed on our side. And so they gathered this coalition of armies together, and they march against Gibeon, and the Gibeonites say, uh-oh. And they sent a delegation to Israel, uh, where the Israelites were camped, and said to Joshua, you made a covenant with us. You said you would not harm us, you would help us, so we need your help. We're about to be attacked by many armies, and we need you to help. And so Joshua marches through the night with the Israelite army, and they come upon the scene, and God gives them a great victory. And upon that victory, at the end of chapter 10, they begin to conquer the entire southern part of Canaan. So it's a remarkable story about how God moves with power to give the Israelites victory against a vast force. And really, I just have three takeaways from this chapter. And I hope that you'll get this and I'll get this so we can walk away with some things that will really help us in our Christian journey. So here's the first takeaway from Joshua chapter 10. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, as chapter 10 unfolds and we see Joshua conquer different kingdoms in the southern part of Canaan, It says, as you fast forward to verse 42 at the end of this chapter, Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So why did they have success? 
Because God was on their side. And when God is on your side, nothing and no one can stand against you. Now, as we think about this idea that God was on their side, there are a couple of thoughts I want you to, to, to think through with me. First of all, I want you to see that the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. We don't often like to think about God in those terms, but the Bible is clear that God is a warrior. He's not a weak, uh, namby-pamby God. He is an all-powerful God that comes to fight on behalf of his people. We see this in verse 10. It says, As uh, Joshua marched up all night from Gilgal, the Lord threw them, the rival armies, into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. So as the Israelites attack, God throws the other armies into a panic so they can't fight. They just begin to, to flee. And then it says in verse 11, As they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, how do you know you're in trouble when God himself begins to throw hailstones at you? Because you understand, don't you, God doesn't miss. And God comes to fight on behalf of his people. And it says there are more that are killed by the hailstones than the sword of the armies of Israel. So we see that the Lord is a warrior. He comes to fight for his people, which means that he brings his power to bear against the enemies of his people. Now in verse 16, you see something interesting. They, they take these kings that they conquered and they hold them for a while. And then Joshua goes through this ceremony to illustrate to Israel how God fights for his people against the enemies of Israel. It says in verse 24, When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And then he puts the kings to death. And so in this ceremonial way, Joshua is illustrating for the people, God is on our side, and when God is on our side, no army, no king, no coalition can stand against us. So we see God brings his power to bear on behalf of his people. So if God is for us, who can stand against us? The answer is no one. Which leads to an obvious question. How can we know that God is on our side? How can we know that we are God's people? That God will stand for us and against our enemies. That God will protect us and watch over us. How, how can we know that for sure? Well, the Bible is very, very clear. We become children of God. We become people of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a wonderful passage over in Romans chapter 8, which speaks of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be saved, the the. The, the reality that we are God's people in God's hands. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. This is one of the great passages in all of God's Word. The Bible says, 
What then shall we say to these things? Here's the question that is the first point of the sermon. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, watch this, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, if you are saved, you have embraced the love of God, and if you are in Christ and in the love of God, nothing and no one can separate you from the love of God. God is on your side. And nothing can stand against you. No one can stand against you. You are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. So how can we be sure that God is for us? We've got to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. That's the only way you become a child of God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to know that God's on your side, if you want to have this security that Romans 8 speaks of, this this idea that you'll never be separated from the love of God, you've got to know Jesus Christ personally by faith. I read a quote this past week by a pastor named Matt Smithhurst. He wrote, To be in Christ in North Korea is far safer than being outside him in North America. You know what that means? It means if you're a Christian in North Korea, even though you might be living in the midst of a totalitarian regime, nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. And even if God allows you to be harmed or even killed, guess what? Your next step is heaven. You can't lose. You're in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. But if you're outside of Christ... You don't know the Lord personally, and you're driving down Highway 51 past the downtown square of Hernando, you are in grave danger. Because if you die in that condition separated from God, you will spend eternity separated from God in that awful place called hell. So you listen, you're much safer in Christ in North America in North Korea than you are outside of Christ in Hernando. Let me say it like this. We are saved through Jesus, and we are safe in Jesus. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I've got really good news for you. God is on your side. And if God be for us, who can stand against us? And so the first takeaway is, if God be for us, who can stand against us? The answer, of course, is no one. Second takeaway is this. There is incredible power 
in prayer. There's incredible power in prayer. Look back with me in Joshua chapter 10. It says, There's been no day like it before or since, the longest day, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. The Lord responded to a prayer. For the Lord fought for Israel. We are reminded from Joshua 10 that there is incredible power in prayer. And I believe that Joshua 10 is a clarion call to God's people to pray big prayers. And I want to spend some time challenging you and challenging me to pray big prayers. God-honoring, grand, glorious, majestic prayers for the God of the universe to move in mighty ways. Prayers that go beyond our little corner of the world. Prayers that shake the foundations of society for the glory of God. When's the last time you prayed a big prayer like Joshua did? Sun, stand still. I want to make three observations about big prayers. First of all, big prayers recognize great opportunities. Look what it says in verse 11. It says, as they, the rival armies, as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So the armies that they're fighting against are on the run. And it says in verse 12, at that time, when Joshua sees the armies in retreat, he sees them fleeing. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord and prayed for the sun to stand still. Why did Joshua pray that prayer? Because he saw this was a moment of great opportunity to achieve total victory over the enemy. And in the face of that opportunity, at that time, he prays a big prayer. Now, I've observed that as Christians living in a decaying society, and make no mistake about it, our society is decaying. As we live in a rapidly decaying society, it's easy for Christians to wring their hands and just bemoan the challenges of all that we see around us. It's hard to be a Christian in this culture. It's hard to raise children in this culture Things are getting darker, and, 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 and we can find ourselves just talking about how terrible the darkness is. What if, instead of simply bemoaning the challenges, what if we began to see the darkness in our land as an opportunity for God's glory to shine? And what if we begin to pray big prayers that in the midst of all that's going on, God would move in unmistakable ways to turn our world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What if instead of looking at everything as as a challenge and woe is me, what if we begin to go against the darkness in our prayer closets and begin to pray big prayers? Seeing opportunities for God to move in mighty ways. Big prayers recognize great opportunities. Secondly, big prayers require great faith. Look what it says in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel. Notice that. In the sight of Israel. Sun, stand still. Now, Joshua could have prayed this prayer in his tent, couldn't he? So no one could hear it. 
hey, hey, Lord, we really could use some more time. And so I'm going to pray this prayer. I don't really want anybody else to hear me in case you don't come through. But I'm going to pray, would you, would you cause the, the day to lengthen? Would you cause the sun to stand still so we can have total victory? Not, that's not what Joshua does. Joshua marches into the middle of the people. And in a very public way, he prays, Sun, stand still. In the sight of Israel, he prays a big prayer. Why? James Montgomery Boyce writes, He was not afraid of being humiliated by failure because he wanted only what God had told him would happen. He laid his belief on the line. If we do as Joshua did, we will find that God honors it. The reason he prayed a big public prayer is because of his great faith in the power of prayer. He wasn't ashamed. God, would you cause the sun to stand still? He wasn't worried about being humiliated because others heard him pray. He placed it in God's hands and prayed a big prayer. Great faith. This past week was the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. It was held in Phoenix this year. I wasn't able to go. But I was able to watch a lot of it online. And there was an interesting moment in one of the meetings. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention right now is Steve Gaines, pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. And he was uh, working through the order of the meeting. And there was a moment where he called one of his staff members from Bellevue up on the platform. And he told the thousands of people sitting there in that room that this young man had been diagnosed with cancer. Very serious. And he asked the people in the room to, to, to stretch their hands toward the platform in agreement and prayer. And before the thousands of people in that conference hall, before the thousands watching online, Steve Gaines prayed a big prayer for healing. Wasn't a shame for anybody to hear it. He didn't take you behind the curtain backstage and said, hey, let's pray that God would heal you. He, in a very public way, with great faith, asked the God of the universe to move in supernatural ways and touch that young man's body and heal him of his cancer. And the fact that he prayed it so publicly was a demonstration of his great faith in the God who answers prayer. So big prayers recognize opportunity for God to move. And big prayers are fueled by great faith. But third, big prayers precede mighty acts of God. Mighty acts of God. It says when Joshua spoke to the Lord, sun stands still. Verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stopped. God gave them more time to achieve complete victory. Now here's what's interesting. In verse 11, there's the miracle of the hailstones. That's a miracle of God's initiative. He chose to throw down the hailstones. And many miracles throughout the Bible are miracles brought about by God's initiative. He chooses to do it. But this miracle, the sun standing still, is a miracle in response to prayer. And there are many miracles throughout God's Word and throughout church history that are a response to God's people praying. And so here in this text... The prayer of Joshua precedes the mighty act of God, and God moves with power. Now, I was, um, I was amused this past week and a little irritated as I began to read different Old Testament scholars and, and what they had to say about this miracle. They tried to come up with different 
explanations for the sun standing still and the moon stopping in the sky. And like, well, that couldn't really happen because if the moon actually stopped, you know, it's, it's whirling through space at certain speeds and, and you know, it would, it would change the dynamics and, every, you know, it would destroy everything. And, and, and so maybe it was a refraction of light. God refracted the light later on, later in the day. And maybe it was this, maybe it was that. And I just got so uh, just amused and finally said, listen, God is God. He can suspend the laws of nature because he put the laws of nature in place. And if God wants the sun to stand still in the sky and then preserve humanity and the world through that time, God can absolutely do it. He's a big God and he does it. Listen, he does this miracle in response to prayer. Prayer precedes the mighty act of God. I like what Adrian Rogers says. Prayer can do anything that God can do, and God can do anything. Think about that. Prayer can do anything that God can do, and God can do anything. So here's my encouragement to you. Starting with dads. This is Father's Day. Dads, this is a good word for you this morning. Let's learn to pray bigger prayers. Let's ask God to do some things that can't be explained. Amen? Some supernatural, mighty things that turn the world upside down for the glory of God. Let's pray big prayers. For example, maybe you need to be encouraged today to keep on praying for a prodigal. Maybe it's your child or your grandchild or someone that you know that's close to you. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and that person that you love so dearly is still running from God and you're discouraged and you think it's never going to happen and you want to stop praying. You want to just throw in the towel and and give up. Over in Luke 18, Jesus has a word for people that want to stop praying. He shared a parable and the Bible says he shared this parable so that people would not lose heart in prayer. And he shares the parable of this persistent widow that goes to this judge, this, this earthly judge, seeking justice. And because she doesn't give up, and she keeps on going to the judge and, and keeps on asking him for justice, finally the judge gives in and responds to her request. And Jesus makes this point. If an ungodly judge will respond to persistence, how much more will a good, good father respond to the persistent, big prayers of his people? And Jesus shared that parable to say, don't stop praying. Don't give up. Pray big prayers. Pray that God would capture their heart. Pray that God would intersect their life. Pray that God would put the right people in their path. Pray big prayers. Don't give up. God answers prayer. You know, a prayer that I would love for you to pray along with me is something that's been on my heart for years now as the pastor of the point. And it comes from a passage found in Acts chapter 2. And the passage always stirs my heart. It always does. When I read Acts chapter 2, at the very end of that passage, it speaks of the church in Jerusalem. The Bible says, day by day, people were being saved. And I, and I think, how incredible would it be if through the ministry of the point, through the gospel conversations of our church members, 
we see people coming to Christ every day. If you average it out, that means we see 365 people saved in a year, right? What if we saw 365 people make professions of faith, baptized, assimilated to the church, and discipled in their walk with God? Can you imagine what a game changer that would be? Now, the God who is God in Acts chapter 2 is still the God who is God today. And if God can save somebody every day through the ministry of the church in Jerusalem in the first century, God can save somebody every day through the ministry of the church at Longview Point. Amen? Big prayers. God, would you let us see people saved every day. People called from darkness into your marvelous light. That's a big prayer. Tell you something I like to see happen in our culture. I would love to see Roe v. Wade overturned. I would love to see a culture of life win the day in our in our land. And you look at that and and you see the political posturing out there, and, and it just looks like it's impossible. It'll never happen. The, the opponents to the, the pro-life stance are so vociferous. And you think, that'll never happen. Is God still on his throne? Do we really believe that every life is made in the image of God and has intrinsic value and worth? Let's pray some big prayers, amen? Let's pray that God would move in such a way that the entire perspective of our nation is turned on its head and the pro-life perspective wins the day. It's a big prayer. It looks impossible. But listen, guess what? God made the sun stand still. I'll tell you another big prayer. That God would send another awakening to America. In the 1700s, we saw what historians call the first great awakening. God moved with might and power and Tens of thousands were swept into the kingdom of God. In the 1800s, we saw the second great awakening. God moving all over this nation. People being saved. Amazing time in church history. But our land is still waiting for the third great awakening. We've not seen it, but listen, come in close. We desperately need it. We desperately need it. We need God to move with power in our midst. By His Spirit, sweeping across our land, people hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, being brought into the kingdom of God, reconciled to a holy God through Christ. We need that in our day. We need God to move. And guess what? If you look at awakenings through church history, through human history, you can see that almost all of them can be traced back to a small group of people who were praying big prayers. What if God used you and God used me and our prayers as a catalyst for awakening? We desperately need it. What about the lostness in our world? You look at the nations. Over 11,000 ethno-linguistic people groups. Over 600 of those are unreached people groups. A very small percentage, if any, are believers in Christ in that people group. 
over 3,000 of those people groups in our world today are unengaged, unreached people groups, which means that people are born in that, that land, that culture. They grow up, they have families, they have jobs, and they die never having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They haven't heard it, and no one's trying to share it with them. There's no one there engaging that lostness. And I've been around the world, and I've seen the lostness. I've seen the the world religions that are leading people to that eternity of separation from God in hell. I've seen the great needs, and it's overwhelming. But what if we prayed big prayers? That God would fuel by His Spirit church planting movements that would infiltrate those unreached peoples in every village, in every town, in every city among those unreached people groups would have a gospel preaching, New Testament, Bible believing church. Can God do that? Yes. But we need to pray big prayers. I could go on and on and on and on, but let me ask you a personal question. Is there something going on in your life, in your family, that calls for big prayer? Will you be encouraged today by Joshua's big prayer? Son, stand still. And will you begin to pray big prayers, placing your needs, your requests in his hands, who is able to move? I read this anecdote about a Chinese evangelist named Leland Wong. He was moved by this story where the sun stood still in the sky. He was moved by another story in 2 Kings where the Lord causes gravity to be suspended and an axe head floats to the surface of the water. And he wrote on his letterhead. Every letter he sent out had this written across the top of the the letter. The sun stood still. The iron did float. This God is our God. In other words, this Chinese evangelist had great faith that the God of the miracles of the Bible is still God today. That God does big things in response to big prayers. So, the first takeaway, if God is for us, who can be against us? Second takeaway... There is incredible power in prayer. Third, take away and we'll be through. Spirit-empowered obedience wins spiritual victories. Spirit-empowered obedience wins spiritual victories. Now starting in verse 29, Joshua begins to, to conquer all of southern Canaan. When they crossed the Jordan River, they first attacked Jericho and then Ai, which is sort of the center of the land of Canaan. It kind of divided it into half, and, and they went and conquered southern Canaan. At the end of this chapter, in chapter 11, they go and conquer northern Canaan. That's kind of the, the strategy that, that Joshua is using. And, and we see there the different kings, the different cities that are conquered by Joshua and the Israelite army. But look at the summary found in verse 40. The Bible says, So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings, He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And then it says in verse 42, Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So we see two great parallel truths. Truth number one, Joshua is 
obeying the Lord's instructions. Principle number two, or truth number two, God's helping him do it. It's it's spirit-empowered, God-empowered obedience. Listen to me. You can't be obedient without God's help, right? And in this this chapter, we see that he is living out, Joshua is living out spirit-empowered obedience, thus winning spiritual victories. Let me say it like this. When we obey God's plan and God's power, God gets the glory and we get the victory. Now, could it be that you're here this morning and you are falling flat on your face spiritually over and over and over again? And instead of your life being characterized by victory, your life could be characterized by utter, frustrating, debilitating defeat. Could that be the case in your life this morning? And if it is, could it be that there are some areas of disobedience in your life? One thing we learn from Joshua is this. The disobedient don't win victories. Joshua, in his spirit-empowered obedience, wins victories. And so if there are some some areas, maybe even some vast areas of disobedience in your life, deal with them today. Ask God for His forgiveness and His cleansing, and ask God to help you by His Spirit that lives in you to begin to live a life of consistent obedience in that area or many areas in your life. And I believe that as you and I live out Spirit-empowered obedience we will see a growing amount of victory in our life instead of experiencing defeat over and over and over again. And when you obey God in the power of the Spirit following His plan, guess who gets the glory? The one helping you to do it. Amen? And so Spirit-empowered obedience wins spiritual victories. Those are three takeaways from Joshua chapter 10. But here's one major point to kind of sum all of this up. And here's what I want you to walk away with today. You may only be one prayer and one step of obedience away from great spiritual victory. You may only be one prayer and one spiritual or one step of obedience away from great spiritual victory. Maybe you find yourself in difficult circumstances. Maybe you're spiritually unhealthy. Maybe there's issues going on in your family or your marriage or your relationships or your workplace or your ministry. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of things going on and you need God's help. Maybe you're just one big prayer away from God moving with power. And maybe you're just one step of obedience away from God blessing you with victory. Maybe God is allowing the difficulty to deal with your disobedience. Have you thought about that? It could be. But maybe you're just one step away. Sun, stand still. Truly the longest day.